Section 8 of A Change of Air by Catherine Fullerton Gerald. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Section 8 Mr. Reed had not summoned many people to his little conference. Indeed, there were not many left in New York whom he could summon, for much of Miss Wheaton's money had betaken itself to inaccessible places. There was Randall, for example, a stiff, silent man, whose wife had died six months before, her last illness made just tolerable to her husband by the luxuries Miss Wheaton had enabled him to lavish on her. But Randall had gone west to make a new start there for his boys. Jim Huntingdon was sitting somewhere on the roof of the world, dangling his feet over in an ecstasy. Mrs. Corbett was solitary, and could have been drawn into the conference, but since her accession of fortune her health had left her, and she was wintering in California. Mrs. Corbett, had Mr. Reed but known, need scarcely have been regretted, for from the moment that she could afford operations, one after another had been found necessary. She was now living as cheaply as medical advice permitted and looking forward to another in the spring, one of those women whose doom it is to be nothing but a complicated surgical demonstration. Many of the beneficiaries Mr. Reed had, of course, quite lost track of. Some of the others there was no use in consulting. One or two had died. There were a few left, wise virgins of the parable, but by no means twelve of them. These he had asked to come. It was a painful business. He dreaded it. The Johns came first through the empty room, Bessie John wearing her quietest clothes and her quietest manner, Philip a little ponderous and tired. Mrs. John had not spoken to her husband of Mr. Reed and his summons since she had asked for his forgiveness the afternoon before. Walter Levin followed close upon them, a little older, a little drier and fainter than the last time he had visited those offices. Mrs. Williston was last of all, so very late that it was apparently by intention. The lawyer looked about at the tiny group. Strange that after only two years these should be all he could, for one reason or another, lay hands on for his purpose. But he looked at Walter Levin and at Philip John, and took heart. In a few words, nervous but clear, he put the situation before them. Miss Wheaton had reserved very little of her capital for her own use. It had been left in his hands, yes, but she had insisted, contrary to all his advice, in keeping the amount in its original investment. It was a matter, he believed, of sentiment— an inheritance from her mother that had always been invested in that particular concern. Perhaps they knew that she had not always been in sympathy with her father's methods. He had grown anxious, warned her, but she had refused to alter it. He could not be sure that his last letter had even reached her. He had had no answer. Times had changed very much. New legislation, new mergers— New methods had killed the business. The stockholders had lost all their money. Miss Wheaton, voluntarily impoverished, was now involuntarily penniless. What could be done about it? The only expression of shocked surprise came from Philip John. 
Walter Levin had so long been beset by vague presentiments that he was mightily relieved to know the worst. His features relaxed. Old Mrs. Williston had a religion to sustain her, a religion that dealt largely in the catastrophes of other people. Bessie John had guessed it at five minutes past eleven the evening before, and had had time to deal with it, but Bessie John did not wish to be the first to break the silence that fell. She was very, very glad that the money was hers and not Philip's, for that meant that Philip could not break the silence either. He could not even consult her privately there in public. She sat, taught, and prepared. Her plan had been all a matter of taking certain cues that she felt sure would come. She waited for them. She was counting on Aunt Blanche. Mr. Reed, who had been counting on Walter Levin, saw that though he could probably still count on him, it would not be for speech. One quick glance showed him Philip John distressed and silent, prey of feelings as delicate as you liked, but conflicting. He was obviously moved, but he could not rush to Miss Wheaton's relief with his wife's money. Mrs. John was entirely at ease in her inn, impulses perfectly in order. Finally, Mr. Reed turned to Mrs. Williston with deference. He must get speech out of the group somehow. He lifted his eyebrows with irresistible interrogation, as if assuming that all of them must needs give precedence to her massive virtue. No questions lightened the silence, and Mrs. Williston took her time. Finally, she turned to the lawyer. "'Where are the others?' "'What others?' "'The others who should have been here with us.' Mr. Reed smiled austerely. They are everywhere and nowhere. I have communicated with a few by writing, but you four are all I could get together for a personal conference. Several whom I could have got hold of, I preferred to leave alone for the present. I wanted to discuss the matter with, well, with the chosen few. It is for us to decide what shall be done. Why, for us more than the others? she asked relentlessly. I do not care to publish this too widely at present. Besides, a good many of Miss Wheaton's beneficiaries, the word stood out naked among them, are no longer in a position to be of much practical use. The estate was very much broken up. I selected of those who were at hand, the people who were, for one reason or another, more able to take responsibility in the matter, who had more wisdom, who presumably hadn't squandered their windfall utterly, who, well, who could be dependent on to take in the situation and to act. It is probably no news to any of you that some of Miss Wheaton's friends have turned out to be mere wasters and fools. I should be glad, Mrs. Williston, if you would give us your advice. You are a very old friend of hers, I believe. I have known Cordelia Wheaton a long time, Mrs. Williston admitted, but my own opinion is that she is out of her mind. I think we should proceed on that basis. Your reasons for believing that? Mrs. Williston was wholly undismayed by his sharpness. She replied not without unction. I have been told that she has spent the last two years in the East— 
giving herself up entirely to the practices of some heathen sect. I merely put the most charitable construction upon her actions. I know of no fund that can provide for such people. I see no way out of it but an insane asylum. Do I understand you to mean that you think her dangerous to society? Probably not, but I do not see how she can benefit by Christian charity. I am on the executive board of the Refuge for Aged and Indigent Gentlewomen, but I should be powerless. All our inmates are required to profess the Christian religion. I will make inquiries. Any point that can be stretched shall be. But you see my position. We are non-sectarian, but evangelical. I am afraid there is no hope there. Of course, if Cordelia could see the light again. But she was always obstinate. I was very fond of her, and this is a great distress to me. Mrs. Williston shook out the folds of a fine white handkerchief and ceased speaking. Walter Levin, with complete disregard of manners, got up and walked to where Mr. Reed sat behind his desk. There he whispered flagrantly in the lawyer's ear. Mr. Reed shook his head. Levin whispered again. The others turned away from this by-play, each choosing an object to stare at in the comfortable office. Bessie John fixed a brown leather cushion in a deep chair, as once she had fixed Miss Wheaton's chessmen with her gaze. She seemed to be counting the buttons on the cushion, if indeed she were not too intent on it even to count. The chair was on her left hand, and her husband sat at her right. John contemplated his wife's right ear, as if trying to mesmerize her through that novel means. Mr. Reed at last scribbled something on a paper, folded the paper carefully, and handed it to Levin, whereupon Levin left the room. The click of the closing door brought all eyes back to Mr. Reed. The lawyer turned to Bessie John. Mrs. Williston is too overcome by her friend's misfortune to envisage the situation helpfully, I fear. Mr. Levin said that he should return presently, but meanwhile let me ask you for your opinion, Mrs. John. Bessie John shook out her muff and regarded it head on one side, as if even then she needed time to recover her coherence from the shock. I hardly go so far as Mrs. Williston in the matter of Miss Wheaton's sanity. Misled, misguided rather, I should think. She paused. She was able to look at Mr. Reed without including her husband in her fringe of vision, and she took full advantage of that fact. Could you give us an idea, Mr. Reed, of how many people besides ourselves are in a position to join us in any plan we might make for Miss Wheaton? The lawyer answered calmly with tight lips. No, Mrs. John, I cannot. As I said, I have written to those I thought possible. He referred to a list. Mr. Huntingdon is virtually inaccessible, as are several others. Miss Fort, I believe, has nothing left. It is a rather tragic case. Miss Bean is in hospital, but I hope to see her soon. Mrs. Corbett is too ill to approach. Randall, Struther, um, the decision must be made right here, among us. We'll let the broken reeds go for the moment, I think. 
What will you do? The question rang out commandingly. Mrs. John raised a deprecating hand. Mr. Reed, I quite see the gravity of the situation. Of course, we must all face it. But it is not a question of duty, is it? It is a question of sentiment, and of how much we can severally afford to spend for sentiment's sake. Don't you think you are perhaps a little too prone to think of our money as still being Miss Sweeten's, and of her misfortune as being necessarily ours? I see the irony of it all. Poor Miss Wheaton! I could wish she had never divided up her wealth, but you cannot go back on history." Some of us have taken on responsibilities, you see, that cannot be cast off because the poor lady has had hard luck. I am sure Mrs. Williston is thinking of that, too. I am quite ready to do my part, to make sacrifices to do it, but I cannot sacrifice my children. Nor, I fancy, can Mrs. Williston sacrifice her family. My husband and I are not free, and I do not think— she finished with an impertinence so delicate that it was almost courteous, that anything can be gained by putting a pistol to our heads. It is so very unfortunate, is it not, that the ones who are free, unmarried, childless, footloose, have all turned out to be useless, irresponsible, in some cases I'm afraid worse. Mr. Reed considered for a moment. Then he said quietly, I ought to give you a chance to think it over and consult by yourselves. In point of fact, I did not realize that it would be such a complicated business. Shall we adjourn as soon as Mr. Levin comes back? By no means, Bessie John was very quick with her reply. I am sure none of us is so rich that he doesn't know to a penny what he can afford. Certainly not. Mrs. Williston had put away her handkerchief and was ready to take up the discussion again. We have all, as Bessie John says, taken responsibilities upon us that we cannot lightly shake off. I shall not rest until I have found some place for Cordelia Wheaton to lay her head, but I cannot take bread out of the mouth of the righteous. She was as firm as she was vague. Philip John rose and walked to the window, there he turned and stood tense, his back against the wall. "'The money is my wife's, not mine. I haven't any authority to speak. But I want to say here and now that if among us we don't manage to make Miss Wheaton comfortable for the rest of her days, I think we're a set of skunks.' Then he faced about and stared out the window. Bessie John had not been prepared for exactly that— she had expected Philip at some point to declare himself, but she had not quite counted on being called a skunk. Yet, though she was sorry to be called one, she did not shrink from her determination to be one, by her husband's definition. "'Of course I must talk things over with my husband,' she said, "'but I think we can virtually decide everything now. "'Is Miss Wheaton planning to return to this country?' Miss Wheaton probably does not yet know of her catastrophe, but she will know, and, if I am not mistaken, we shall have to take all steps for her. If she is to die of poverty, I personally should be very unwilling to have her die of it in India. I have assumed that she will return. 
We cannot look after her very well over there, and I do not see any particular willingness on the part of her protégés to continue her income so that she can go on with her life precisely as before. Besides, she is not young, and her health is poor. Oh, yes, I think she must come back, don't you, Philip? Mrs. John's tone of solicitude was perfect. John did not turn to answer her. His reply was uttered into the window-pane. I should think so, but I am not in on this discussion. He took a seat then in the farthest corner of the room and began a meticulous inspection of some law-books on the shelves near him. About how much income has Miss Wheaton just been deprived of? Bessie John took a notebook out of her muff and smiled at Mr. Reed. But Mrs. Williston interrupted. I don't think that is the point. The point is how much she absolutely needs to live on in America, in some quiet place, of course. You are quite right, Aunt Blanche. I should have said that. Indeed, you are the most practical of us all. Let me amend my question, Mr. Reed. I do not feel that that is for me to say, the lawyer answered with silken hostility. I hoped you would advise us. Bessie John protested sweetly. If we are to organize a fund, we must decide that first of all. Then Mrs. Williston and I could write down how much we could afford to subscribe and leave the list with you to be completed by appeals to others. I think, of course, that the appeal should be restricted to friends of Miss Wheaton's. And, by the way, aren't there several of her friends who are rich? They certainly ought to be spoken to. Mr. Reed said nothing, but Mrs. Williston spoke for him. Quite right, Bessie. The rich should give from their abundance. I will do what I can, but I warn every one that I shall not curtail my poor benevolence to worthy objects for the sake of giving luxuries to Cordelia Wheaton. Are we to take the children's bread and cast it unto the dogs?' If Mrs. John winced a little under the biblical question, she did not show it outwardly. You are, of course, answerable to your own conscience, Aunt Blanche. I should be quite as willing myself to support Miss Wheaton as if she were evangelical. But then my feelings are always getting the better of my principles. What I think we must all realize, she spoke as if the beneficiaries were all there, a cloud of witnesses is that this is a charity like another. If Miss Wheaton has rich friends left, they must be appealed to, and I think Mr. Reed is the person to do it. The lawyer fixed her with a hard gaze. So you think this is a charity like another, Mrs. John? Ah, for that she had prepared herself. It was the crux of the whole matter. Yes, Mr. Reed, she answered gravely. I understand why you do not see it in that way. You think of us as having received lavishly from that admirable woman, and as being niggardly now with her. In other words, you take all this not as charity on our part, but as a just debt, and I am going to tell you why I do not agree with you. I think with you that the persons to be appealed to first are the people to whom Miss Wheaton has been generous financially. But I doubt, with all the wastage there has been, if we can suffice to it. 
We were poor, all of us, when Miss Wheaton divided her money. It was divided, as you know, among a great many people. The unprincipled ones have squandered theirs already. A few of us looked to the future and ordered our lives somewhat differently on the strength of it. Mrs. Williston here has undoubtedly pledged herself to do things for her nephews and to support good works which are a part of her religion. My husband and I have two children now. We are not in the same case we were in when Miss Wheaton, quite gratuitously and unsolicited, changed our expectations. None of us could have foreseen this. If you foresaw it, I think you should have warned us all, that is, if you expected us to step in and correct the workings of fate. Life is not the same for any of us that it was two years ago. The next day, the next month, we could have relapsed. We could have given the money back. Now, most of us probably have quite new factors to reckon with. I cannot starve my children because the money that feeds them came originally from Miss Wheaton, who professed then not to want it or need it. It was as much an outright gift as if she had willed it and died. All of us who were not mere butterflies have accepted responsibilities on that basis, very sacred responsibilities. There was no hint whatever that that was not the right thing for us to do, and I maintain in my own case that my children are my duty and that Miss Wheaton is a charity. As for luxuries, we have no luxuries to give up. I have no jewels, no motor cars to sell, no unnecessary expenses to curtail. Whatever I contribute will come out of the lifeblood of my family. I am willing and anxious to contribute something, but I utterly deny anyone's right to ask it, or anyone's reason in calling it a duty. I do not know whether or not I speak for Mrs. Williston, but I fancy I do. I fancy I speak for everyone who has not made ducks and drakes of Miss Wheaton's gift. As I say, I will give what I can, but it is so very little that I think you will have to go to richer people in the end. You have, I understand, no authority from Miss Wheaton, in any case— if I know anything about her, she would rather die where she is than have you demand her money back from the people she gave it to. Of course you are right to try to plan for her, but I think you can take it from me that Miss Wheaton would rather you appealed to those of her friends who never needed her money than to those she knew desperately did need it. And no amount of consulting or discussion, she finished, can change my firm conviction that I am acting rightly. My husband seems to have gone on record as disagreeing with me, but I hope that, now that I have explained myself, he will change his mind. In any case, I shall have plenty of time to explain myself further to him. Do you think it necessary for us to wait longer for Mr. Levin? The sum I can offer is almost negligible. And she rose fastening her furs about her neck. In point of fact, Bessie John had expected more help from Mrs. Williston than Mrs. Williston had given her. She had expected figures, small ones, from Aunt Blanche, something named that she could easily better. But, tactician though Bessie thought herself, she had worked in ignorance. 
Aunt Blanche, a few months before, had bought an annuity, and she had spent this hour like a doleful pendulum, alternating between the desire to let herself out by confessing to the annuity, and the fear that if she confessed, her family would learn of it and cast off her yoke. The bewildered woman had been trying, in all the intervals of speech, to calculate whether, if her niece and nephews did know, they would still continue to cling to her for the sake of scraps. They might, but then again the scraps might not seem to them worth clinging for. She was not psychologist enough to know, and she did not wish to give up the throne room and the deference, for which she paid in cold cash very little. If Bessie John had known how acutely Mrs. Williston had been suffering, she might easily have forgiven her for not furnishing all the expected cues. As it was, she saw only that Aunt Blanche was not to be counted on as she had thought, and therefore she rose, having stated her own case in full. Walter Levin's re-entrance, however, made it impossible for her to leave at once, though she did not sit down again. Philip John and Mrs. Williston had also risen to their feet. Mr. Reed seemed ready enough to have them depart. "'They have had their say, Levin,' he remarked curtly. "'If you can stay on for a little, I will report to you.' But Mrs. Williston could not go out of the open door without one vain effort for the semblance of nobility. "'It has occurred to me just now,' she began, that Cordelia might make a joint household with Miss Bean. I am not sure that that would not be the best solution. Miss Bean is used to managing on very little, and Cordelia is very unpractical. I wonder it did not occur to us before. I dare say if we all contributed, she glanced austerely at Levin, it could be arranged. Cordelia has been a vegetarian for years, "'Think it over. I am quite struck with it. "'Are not you, my dear?' she turned to Mrs. John. "'Bessie gave her one queer little appalled glance, then bit her lip. "'I have said everything that I have to say to-day.' "'She bowed to Mr. Reed and beckoned to her husband. "'Aunt Blanche had certainly not played the game. "'Mrs. Williston, flushed with her own cleverness, "'was almost ready to linger. "'But Walter Levin, not Mr. Reed, "'took it upon himself to answer her. "'I don't know who Miss Bean is,' he said coldly, "'but I am quite sure she is not fit for Cordelia to live with, "'certainly not if she was at Cordelia's house that day.' "'The expression of his mouth seemed to dispose of Mrs. Williston "'both in this world and in the next. "'I have cabled to Huntington,' he went on, turning to Mr. Reed. "'The others might listen if they chose,' but he seemed not even to be aware of that. "'Of course he'll look after her at that end, get her on to a ship, and I will meet her at San Francisco.' Mrs. Williston looked as if she wished to re-enter the conference, but Bessie John pushed her gently towards the door. Mrs. John did not even bow to Levin as she left the office, but her husband, silently following her, stopped an instant and held out his hand to him. Levin, taken by surprise, did not manage to grasp John's hand without awkwardness. You would have said that he found himself having an inexplicable little interlude with the furniture, but the hands met somehow, and John and the two women got out. 
I am engaged, Boomer, said Mr. Reed. The door was closed firmly, and the lawyer and Levin faced each other intimately across the table. End of section 8